Andrew Bogart, hello. How you going? You're not bad. Thanks for coming. We were just talking, you haven't been in here since Boomers USA, right? Yeah, no, I haven't. Obviously, with everything going on in the world and kind of my busy schedule and everyone's schedules, I think we um, yeah, haven't had a chance to even come back and reminisce about what happened here a number of years ago. I remember the story that I was told after that game, after the win. Um, you didn't want to do media initially, right? And then, who was it? Someone told you that, like, like think of the moment. Like, you don't want to give this up. Is that what happened? I honestly don't remember that I didn't want to do media. Um, I think I probably didn't want to do media. Was that after the win? After the win. I had my son in the locker room. Yeah, okay. That, that would be why. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it was anything to do with anything calculated. But I had I had my, I went and grabbed my son after the buzzer sounded. There was a, a few photos of that, me walking out with holding him. And um, I think it was to do with that because I was like, where the hell am I going to put him? Um, I might have done something actually briefly. I think I ended up doing something um, you, briefly. I think you came on the, came on the post-game press. I did, yeah. yeah, Because I was more worried about my son like running around. He was, I think he was two years old at that point. So I was just worried about um, about him just going crazy during the interview, but ended up doing it. But that was the reason why I think I pushed back initially. Yeah, okay. What was, how was that game for you? Like it, we, we spoke about briefly before we jumped on here, the crowd and all that sort of thing. Just, to have that many people, did you feel like, not responsible, but, you know, all of these people have come to see you guys and then you win, you know, like, is there a prouder moment for you? Not on Australian soil, not for Australian basketball mm-hmm. on Australian soil. Um, even the first game, we didn't play that well and we were right there to, to the end. So we, we came in with a great confidence into game two um, that we could win that game. We were just a better team from one, one through 12 where we, we played more team-orientated basketball. We knew that they were more talented than us when you put individual versus individual. Right. So, yeah, to do that on Australian soil, a record crowd for a basketball game, I think even for, for might even be potentially for the Etihad Stadium or what's it called now, whatever it's called now. Um, and, yeah, I think Marble Stadium, sorry. But, yeah, yeah, I think it's just to be forever in those books of, you know, being the Australian team to beat the USA team. Yeah. And on top of that, to do that in, in my home city and a lot of guys' home countries um, was, was real special. You like the little shot that kind of Australian that the Australian boomers threw at AFL, right? You like the whole look what we look what we can do. Yeah, I think it was great. I think you know we're, Melbourne's a footy Australian football town, um, so there's a lot that goes into the way they promote the game, and um, Australian football is entrenched in politics and councils and they get funding from everywhere whereas basketball gets really none of that um, maybe at a junior level but definitely not at a senior level like we don't get paid to play for our national team so for us to come in and um, I think that was a part of the backlash to be honest with you I think there were some people that obviously had some seats that weren't great but you're sitting on the floor in a historic event right next to yeah. the court with historic players but then that push from some of the AFL media oh you know it wasn't great and people got screwed and all that I think some of that had um, a mindset of they just got more fans and like you're a threat yeah somewhat I mean yeah well look we're not a league we're a national team but I think people were like wow like I think initially when this got announced years before it happened people were like oh how's that going to work they're not going to fill the stadium up and then you know it, got, it sold out and people were sitting on the on the floor and people came and had bad seats and from a lot of people I spoke to that had bad seats um, were a little bit disappointed with the seats, but once the game got going and realizing, especially game two, that they were part of something historic, yeah, they enjoyed that moment. Um, it wasn't as overhyped as probably the the hundred um, negative Nellies that called radio stations and that people were writing about. Is playing for the national team, that's the thing that 
you're going to hate most when you watch the team in Tokyo, right? Not being part of the playing group. Yeah, I just was playing basketball in general. Um, but yeah, the, the national team was just a little bit more special just because I feel like this group has that puncher's chance of getting a medal. And that was kind of the goal for, for myself from day one, joining the national team. I, you know, people, people need to remember when I joined the national team, we were um, in a big transition period of, of you know, Shane Heal and, and I mean, Gaze had retired in 2000 and, and, and Luke Longley and Mark Bradkey and the household names of the 80s and 90s that I grew up idolizing were all gone, right? And yeah. we were in a period where we didn't have any NBA players at the time. And the squad was kind of all over the place. Gorge took over. I don't know if you remember, we, we didn't qualify for the, for the world champs in 2002. New Zealand beat us. Yeah. So there was a, a lot of turmoil within the program. So the rebuild took a while. But I think the program, for the first eight or nine years I was involved in it, it was just kind of, I wouldn't say it was guys were just happy to be participating in the Olympics. But a lot of guys didn't have that mindset of like, we're going in to try to win a medal. Like guys didn't think that was realistic and, and maybe rightfully so, but I thought it was the wrong mentality. I, I really, it really bothered me going to some of those tournaments. We had, you know, playing against the USA team and we had guys on the team that were like asking to get their shoes signed before a game, you know? Jesus. So for me being an NBA player, hating those guys trying to beat them, you've already lost a game before the game starts. So that's what I'm most proud of. That's changed now. That shift. That shift has changed from probably 2014, 15. We made a big shift and, and went into 16 and obviously fourth there and then fourth in 19. But that, that shift's changed now to where like, no, nah, we can, like, we're going to come in and try to win this thing. Like our goal isn't to get a medal. Our goal isn't to like just beat the USA. Our goal is to try and win a gold medal. And, you know, obviously if we get a silver or bronze along the way, you know, we take that in stride. But our goal is to win a gold medal. And I think it's, I think it is an achievable goal now. Whereas 10 years ago, if you said that, it probably, probably wasn't an achievable goal. I feel like most other national teams at this point have that sentiment, right? So you, you look at Serbia, look at Spain. It's not, we're, we're going for second, right? That, that's always been the sort of thinking, yeah. right? Like USA is going to win, Silver's going to be awesome. Um, how much of that do you put down to just guys flourishing in the NBA? So you look at Joe and Delhi and Aaron Baines and all those guys just getting confidence and then coming here and then being willing to accept the role. It's very important, and that's the, the hardest thing with the national team is that you got twelve guys that are probably the first, if not second, option on a club team wherever they play in the world. So you all of a sudden come into a situation where, even if you're an NBA player, where coach might say, "We don't need you to do that for us. We don't need you to handle the ball thirty minutes a game. We want you off the ball. We want you to be a lockdown defender." And, and that's the huge part of the, the, the puzzle for a national team coach. And all the national teams that struggled don't have that and they have guys that are like, you know, there's human nature becomes a big problem because you might have a free agent that's even in Europe or the NBL or even the NBA and they're like, I'm going to use this national team campaign to get my value up. And you're yep. like, you're here for the wrong reason, dude. Like, like get out of here. Like, we don't want you here with that mentality. Um, and that's that's the hardest thing a coach has to deal with. And I think for the most part, we, we got it right the last four or five campaigns where it was like, dude, like, just leave your shit at the door for two or three months, suck it up with the national team. You might not get minutes, you might, you, you might be in and out of lineups, but, and, you know, we're competitive for the most part doing that. So what was it like with Jonah? So that's the, that's the name that immediately comes, comes to mind. Yep. He kind of bails on the boomers. I think it was, I was on a flight from, I'd watched the games in Perth, mm -hmm. covered those games. I was on a flight back and I get press release just as I land in Melbourne that Jonah Bolden leave for, for, for personal reasons, right? We know it's just because he was at the back end of a rotation. 
he sort of wanted to get back to Philly and do his thing, try to get back into that rotation. As a, as like a senior group, how do you guys approach that? Well, it wasn't, you know, well liked within the group. It, it definitely wasn't. I mean, for Jonah to be involved with the national team again, he's got some um, some things to to work on and figure out. But he's not on he, this squad. Yeah, well, well, to get back in, I'm talking about yeah. down the line. Like he's got a, you know, a lot of these guys, even the younger guys, um, remember what happened. They they're not silly. They know what happened and. Basically came down to him playing behind Nick Kay, essentially, in my opinion, because Nick Kay was an NBL player. Jonah was was essentially, you know, in a big gear for himself to try and solidify himself as an NBA player and, and stay on a roster. And I get that, but then just don't join the national team in the first place. Like if, like I said, and it's hard for, for a young guy. I mean, I'm maybe being a little bit critical of Jonah, but he's in a spot where he's playing for a living still and hasn't, hasn't solidified himself. So he has to be somewhat selfish. But the national team just not a spot for that. So then my argument would be just don't don't come to camp. Like go to Philly straight away. Um, like if you're not brought in from the start. But even so, just if you're brought in and you're worried about your free agency or like I haven't I haven't solidified myself with a contract yet, or I'm nervous about like not playing well in the off season, or I need to work on more things in the off season where I just need to get in the gym by myself. Yeah, not a problem. Like a lot of people miss the national team sometimes for different reasons: injuries, rehab, family issues. That's not a problem. We wouldn't have taken. But then the fact that you you know, you come and then, you know, you realize, oh, it's not great for me. That's where, and the, the crazy thing about that was he actually played, like we were kind of worried about him because he didn't have a, a great camp and, and the first game he didn't play that well. The second game in Perth. The second game he came on and he had, I think he had like 11, 7, 5, two steals, two blocks, like used his length, was getting deflections. So I remember after the game, I, th- I don't know who I was talking to, maybe Joe, I was like, like it's it's great. Like Jonah played well. Like he needed that. You know, he did the he did the press conference after the game, I believe. Yeah. So he was the the, the marquee guy to go because he had a good game. So we're like, that's great. Like he's done the press conference. Like get his confidence up. I remember and- I wrote the story. I wrote a story on like Jonah Bolden, his comments, mm. and then you know if he's playing at this level, think of how much that lifts the Boomers because yeah. they have this piece now. And he was unique for our squad because we could play him at the five at times. He could shoot the three ball, passes it really um, well, and he he's just naturally long. Like he's not strong, but he could get just he was getting deflections on balls that he shouldn't have got deflections on. One of those guys, and then after that press conference, literally twenty minutes later, Paddy came to the back of the bus and was like, "I need to talk to you guys, to like myself, um, Joey, and Bainsey and Delhi." And you know, Jonah's basically said he's he's. He's gone. Like, what do you mean he's gone? Like, oh, yeah, he's he, he's kind of um, leaving for personal reasons or whatever. And like, cool, where is he? Let's get to him. Let's have a chat to him. No, he's already gone. Jeez. Like, he's gone, gone. Like, he's and so we're like, okay, like, if you you know, if you don't want to be a part of it, we're not gonna roll out the red carpet to try to get you back. That's your decision. And, and we had to kind of move on. And, and look, it was a blessing for a guy like Nick Kay because he he had a hell of a campaign for us. He, he was huge for us. No one knew who he was on the international stage and. He's, um, you know, the consummate professional. He did a, a, he did a fantastic job for, for our national team. Um, something that I've spoken to Patty about, which is trying to integrate those young dudes into your way of thinking, which is, you know, we're boomers. This means something. You've got to buy into this thing. Forget about yourself for a moment and, and come in. Yep. Um, I'm thinking of your role now. Is, is joining that program in some capacity something that you're planning to do? Is there a plan for you to do that and kind of help in that regard? Because I'm thinking of like a Luke Longley mm-hmm. and how much he helped Aaron Baines and, and helped build him as a player. You know, do you plan to come in and do something maybe similar? You've got good young bigs in there? Right now, no. Um, just because of everything going on in the world, Gorge asked me to be involved as assistant coach, um, which has been on record. People know about that. And 
I had to think about it <clears throat> and I just thought that with everything going on, the travel to Japan, I, there was still some uncertainty whether it'd go ahead and I just retired. Um, I knocked it back based on that. I, I wanted to do it, but I knocked it back based on that. I, I think it would be a little weird for me um, just going from playing with those guys to now being on the coaching staff. Like straight it's too up. close? Yeah, I yeah. think it is. I think it is. I think I just need to give, give them some space, give myself some space. Um, and then the other thing I got some good advice upon retirement was not to do something just because you're doing nothing um, and that was that's still stuck with me and that's why I haven't jumped into anything yet because I wanted to kind of decompress away from everything and, and really make the right decision about what I'm going to do next and that was in line with that I didn't want to do it and then a month into a grinding national team camp in LA or San Francisco or whatever yeah. being like Shit, I made the wrong decision so that was based on that I'd like to be involved one day to what capacity I don't know look I don't know what what capacity of basketball I'll be involved in. I'll be involved in basketball, whether it's just coaching juniors for now, whether it's you know potentially in the NBL, the national team, I don't know. Um, I will be involved, but right now just I'm enjoying time with my kids and family and, and it's just a shit time in the world. Like I think it's just, it's hard to commit to anything for me. I'm an organization guy. I like to know what's going on. I like to have a schedule. And um, I know that if I committed to something and with the way things are going with COVID and whatnot, it would just do my head in not knowing you know, if something changes on a whim, that pisses me off. Yeah. Kind of stress goes up a little bit and just wouldn't enjoy it as much. So you want to be involved in basketball in some capacity. Right now, it's podcasting. Yeah. Um, so you're sort of lending your voice to a bunch of different issues mm-hmm. while podcasting. Do you, and like it's it's enjoyable. I listen, Rogue Bogues, awesome. Do you have a plan to actually kind of put your foot in and affect change in a different way? So like you, you go out and you, you speak about, for example, issues in the NBL, mm-hmm. right? Which we've spoken about. Uh, but do you, is this, I don't know. I'm thinking of, are you more effective going in as an owner potentially? I, I understand the whole muzzling stuff, but do you reckon you could affect change better from inside as opposed to just speaking in the media and waiting for change to happen? In the NBL, no. I think Larry's setting his ways, um, to be honest with you. And, and roughly so, but nothing against that. Like he's been on record, he funded the league. And I think he's very set, set in his ways. I don't think he really takes outside um, criticism well, which, you know, is a quality in itself. And, and that's, that's the way he does things. And um, do I always do it the right way? Probably not. I'm the first to, first to admit at times I, um, you can, you know, love to hate me, which is fine. Um, what you see is what you get with me and I could probably handle it better at times. But I think my voice is valuable because it can hold, you know, things accountable. I think as far as uh, being on a board or being involved with the league, to that capacity, whether it's NBL or Basketball Australia, I think I'd struggle a little bit because I'm a, I'm not a um, guy that should coach things. And the way the world is going today, uh, if I'm just direct with someone, I'll probably probably be cancelled within a, a week because you know how to be direct these days. You have to kind of word everything in a nice way. And, and there's a time and a place for that, don't get me wrong, but when, when shit needs to get done, hey, what the hell's going on with this shit? Why hasn't that been done? That's controversial today. <laughs> yeah, but that's what I'm saying though. If, if, as much as you can say that on Rogue Bogues, mm-hmm. Like you could potentially, and again, it might be abandoning your sort of like your own like the kind of freedoms, and like your it'll 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 necessarily limit your speech. But could you not be more effective in like from doing this stuff from the inside? I mean, there's probably an argument to be made there, but as of now, with the way the league, um, I'm, I'm I've been somewhat involved mm. within a earshot of what's going on in owners' meetings, obviously. Um, you know, I'm pretty close to Paul Smith, so I'm, I'm kind of across what's going on. I'm close to Chris Pongrass, so yeah, I'm not silly. Like I know what's going on, and I don't think I'd have that 
that power right now. And I, I don't want that. I, it's not even a power thing. I just don't think it... I think it's just... You know, it's it's Larry's way of the highway right now. And like I said, I, I'm not criticizing Matt if that's how he wants to run things. It's yeah. clear as day. But I just don't think... I think we'd be butting heads. And, and like to me, I don't think butting heads is a bad thing. I think butting heads is a good thing because you want... That's how you get progress. Yeah, you. Th- that's the only way you're going to progress. You can't progress with like everyone that Larry's hired under him saying, great job, Larry, you're doing a great job, great job every day. Yeah. Like, no, there's got to be something eventually you're not doing right and we need to improve that. And I think that get lo- get, gets lost in my messaging sometimes. People think it's just critical to be critical, but it's not. It's like, we need, we need to, I want this league to be the clear number two. It's not right now. Yeah. As much as they want to talk about it, you know, it's maybe scratching the top five when you factor in everything, but I want it to get to the clear number two. Like NBA, can't get there, NBL. That'd be yep. fantastic. And how do we get it to that point? We've got a lot of work to do. There's been good things that have been done by Larry, the NBL, Basketball Australia, Jeremy, whoever, right? But we can't keep looking back there and saying, we've done great things, look at this. Well, let's keep going up. And I want that arrow to go bang up rather than like incrementally just going up and then a little bit down, up and a little bit down. That's the annoying thing because everyone's got the same outcome in mind. Yep. Everyone wants the NBL to be at a spot and, and that's what everyone's chasing. Mm-hmm. It just seems like everyone's doing it in different ways. Yeah. Um, you're a member of the board of the Players Association? Yeah, currently, so, yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking of the Players Association, for example, has signed off on the decals. Mm-hmm. If that's an issue that you want to focus on. You know, are you able to affect change in there? Like, is, is that a thing that can happen? Because like, I... Well, I'm, a, I'm a what you see is what you get, guy. Whatever I say yeah. to you and whatever I tweet is what I'm saying in those meetings. So my opinion on it yeah. to Jacob Holmes, to Greg O'Neill, to our board, to the... Is get rid of these get rid of these decals. Yeah, I mean, but I'm you know I'm not I'm not uh, the only voice in that room. I'm not the only board member. So there are obviously other people that have an opinion. And Jacob's doing the best he can with the NBL and Larry, but it lies up to him and the NBL. But if I was running it, yeah, I would have those things off. But then that 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 then leads a conversation of, you know, from what I'm understanding is like okay, what if the NBL says no, we're not we're not moving them regardless? Then then it becomes a, a conversation of is it a player strike? Yeah, you know, and there's a lot of players in this league that were somewhat around when things went under. So there's some PTSD there. Yeah, okay. There's definitely some PTSD there, and and Larry at times uses that to his advantage because it's like, well, without me, you're not getting paid. You're not. You don't have a league. Some guys can't afford to strike. Exactly right. Yeah, and it's it's not even afford a strike. It's that. Remember what happened back in the day when I wasn't around. Yeah. And like I said, fair fair enough. I get it, but we got to move on from that. We can't. The game's not going to progress and get better and grow at a great level if you keep keep bringing that up and, and that's where I think there's a bit of an issue where you know the, the most of the players I talk to some have voiced it publicly a lot have messaged me privately and said thanks for voicing your opinion because you've got a big voice in Australian basketball you've got a big social sure. media presence we can get you know your message is getting out there when you tweet it rather than like me yeah and they've messaged me privately saying like it's an issue like I'm scared like I, I get I get into the lane or I get into the top of the key guarding someone when I'm backing up in a defensive stance, I'm like, where's this decal at? Yeah. You know, and that's that's not good. Like, you, you got to fix it and there's ways of fixing it and they, they just need to continue to figure out and, and, and try to strategize ways of getting rid of those things and at least until it's 100% safe. It's, it's not 100% safe. I don't care if it's FIBA standard, NBA standard, whatever, you, whatever, you, whatever standard, whatever test you do, however many times you wipe it between timeouts, the end result is people are still slipping over. So yep. logic would say, get it off the court and figure something else out. So in five years' time, I think the NBL could get to that spot of mm-hmm. being the obvious second best league. Yep. Um, it's the reason why NBA players continue to buy into the, yep. these teams um, and then just everything that comes with it, right? Australia is really nice. 
English speaking, English speaking, you're, you're safe, get paid on time. Hundred percent, right? Yeah. It's it's got a lot of perks out. Hundred percent. It's really just population and just talent just isn't at the level of those other leagues. Is also because of funding and whatever. Um, do you want to run the league one day? Do I want to run the league? If it gets to that I to mean, that spot, I feel like it seems. I understand you have your thing in the media yeah, yeah. or like your anti-media, whatever you're going to call it. I wouldn't say I'm anti-media. I'm just As in I'm like anti-cronies, your... I'm anti-crony media. No, no, totally. I'm trying to describe what Rogue <laughs> Bogues is because I know you don't want to be in the media. You're sort of like- I'll just take the piss that I don't want to be in the media. I am in the media essentially. Absolutely but I, media. I just want to, I don't want to be- You're one of us. The difference <laughs> is I'm not told what to say and who to interview and everything's run by me. I, yep. write, I write up my, my run sheets. I ask whatever questions I want. I, I allow input from my guests when I have them. Like I have no, and if something's not politically correct or kind of controversial, it runs. I, yeah. don't, I don't care. Like I don't, I'm not going to get you know fired. I'm not going to have a sponsor say we're pulling funding. So I don't have those pressures. Yeah. So that's where I'm different. Where it comes, where, where media has this, there's clear lines where they have to, they can't really go outside of. So that's kind of the difference I think with a podcast and with your own voice. Yeah. So so right now that's what you're focused on. Would you, would you be all in for potentially running the league if that's if, if everything falls into place, if let's say at some point, you know, a board of governors sort of situation ends up being the overseer of the league and it can use you as a figurehead, do, do you think that's something that you'd be interested in? I think if it was done in that format, I'll consider it. I think the only way the league can continue to have, um, grow and have have a genuine, you know, consistency and parity would mm. be a board of governors set up. Like it's a no-brainer. It works for the best league in the world. Every owner... You know, once Tassie's in, you've got 10 teams. Every owner's vote is worth 10%. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. So then you have a commissioner overseeing that, but then he's kind of chatting to the Players Association. He's chatting to, to the owners, and I've been in both those rooms. So I think I'm, I'm pretty qualified in that aspect of making sure that we get the best out of both worlds, but that'd yeah. be a conversation down the track. I'd, I'd, as of today, no. And I don't think, you know, from what I hear, I don't think Larry would allow a board of governors set up, but I, I think that's a no-brainer way to run this league. If you genuinely want to show fans there's no conflicts of interest um that's the way to do it in my opinion so you're now on the sidelines do you miss playing it was a story i was told you were at a sydney kings game one of their home games and i think someone told me that you were sort of you were speaking to sean bruce and i don't know if you were telling him what play to run or what play the other team was running but you're sort of like (laughs) you're still like the leader on the court a little bit well, what happened? Am I, am I hearing that right? Yeah, no, I was pretty close. It wasn't to run a play or go against anything he was doing. It was just a matter of, um, I, can't, I can't remember what it was about. It might have been a shot clock, something late, or they're going to run a certain play. But yeah, I mean, I just try to probably, you know, just help a little bit if, if I can. You know, I was braiding the refs for half the game. And <laughs> just trying to get our, our guys' calls. And um, But yeah, I mean, look, I, I definitely missed the game. I love the challenge of, um, you know, it's... 2021's version of modern warfare, right? Like pro yeah. sports, because it's like our guys versus your guys and we're trying to essentially kill each other, quote unquote, yeah. within our skill sets, right? So you definitely miss that battle. And once that gets turned off, like I'm not getting it. As much as I love my kids and family, you're not getting it from your family. So you got to find other outlets. I mean, outlet for me is poker. I play a fair bit of poker when I can. Right now is not a good time for that, but online I play with some friends. So that kind of gives you a competitive outlet. Um, but yeah, I mean, I 100% miss it. If I could still, you know, I'd love to still play, but the body, you know, the mental side of what I had to go through on a daily basis and just all of that, I think, factored way too heavily on on playing basketball. So we 
just we're, so we're in Docklands right now. On the way in, you saw the Adelaide 36s. <laughs> I did. They, they were doing shoot, like a walkthrough. Doing their walkthrough shooting around in the park. Yeah. On an outdoor court. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, so you, you mentioned that before and I remember a story about, I heard about Will Weaver and the way he does film. Um, it's, he does it on the court, yep. right? Yeah. Have you had someone, so could you describe that for us? Just no. How, awesome. Because yeah. he's, he's just a very progressive coach, right? A lot of new school sort of Well, just thinks outside the box. Like, yeah. how, can we, how can we better something that was fantastic and make it elite? And mm. his whole thing was, we, we'd still watch film in the locker room sometimes. Like, we'd watch the last game, good or bad. We'd still do our scouts pregame in the locker room. But we'd record all practice sessions. And then he'd, there'd be a screen set up in the corner of the gym somewhere. And as soon as something happens and a guy's like, oh, I don't really understand what you mean straight to the film um, sometimes it'd be a team five clips this is how we want to run our flow this was five great clips or this is how flow should look like this was horse watch five of them and it was great because like you're not sitting there long enough to get cold yeah and it's just about bang 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 plan it in your mind you've seen it now like don't do this don't run to this spot when this happens and then you can go and do it again and i thought it was i, I loved it and I've, i made a mental note of that for you know if i one day coach that that was that's my setup i love that because it's not you know with athletes even those Away from the court film sessions, I feel like there's some coaches that have 20, 30, 40, 50 minute film sessions. Like after about 10 or 15 minutes, like guys are already thinking about a girl or <laughs> the next meal or like, man, my knee hurts or shit, when, when can I go home? You know, so yeah. um, all those things I kind of make mental notes of that if I one day coach, I'll, I'll have that in my basket. Yeah, because I had, I had a player speak to me about, you know, a one and a half hour film session he did, just like a film room sort of vibe. And you get 10 minutes in before dudes are scrolling Instagram and, and, and on Snapchat. And it's like, it, it just seems like with the generation of players and people that are coming through now, you sort of have to do something more practical. You do. It's quick hit, quick hit stuff's really important for our generation. And when you look at social media and Instagram, it's the scroll up, next thing, next thing, next yep. thing, next thing. You TikTok. Know, social media. And that's how, unfortunately, whether you love it or hate it, that's how our kids now, you know, I look at my kids sometimes when we give them iPad time every now and then, but, you know, even they're already watching something, but they're flicking through the bottom of the videos like to find yep. the next one without even finishing the first one. And that's yep. just something we got to deal with. Um, but that's the same with, with coaching. You don't want to, you know, kids can't sit still these days for 30, 40 minutes. It's just not in reality. And whether that's a pro or con or a negative or a positive is a separate argument, but you got to then navigate your coaching ways to be a little bit different to get the best out of your players. So what was, because uh, Will Weaver is just such an interesting character mm. to me because he's very new school. He his leap to the NBA happened a lot quicker than I thought it would. You know, I thought maybe he'd live out his contract here and then, yep. but he got legitimate head coach interest from over there. You know, how is he different just overall from some of the other coaches you've had? Cause you've had in an, int- an interesting array of coaches from like mm. Majerus to, to Steve Kerr and um, who, who was your coach in Milwaukee? Scott Skiles for a number of years. Yeah. Terry Stotts. Like so, Scrovia, yeah. so you've had like a mixture of all, styles all of coaches, yep, right? Yep. How, how does Will Weaver sort of differ from those guys? I think he's, yeah, like you said, he's very, you know, progressive as far as he, he tries to make great things even better, um, which is what you have to do. He doesn't just sit on his on his laurels and be like, this is the way I did things when I was a kid, you know. He's not one of those guys. Or back in my day, he's not one of those guys. Yep. And he'll genuinely listen. Um, he's very big on analytics. So, you know, as we saw, like he was to the point of frustration sometimes for me because it was, you know, we, we used to muck a lot. We used to pick on a guy that was a 20% three-point shooter. Like for us, it was Sean Long, right? Like during yep. the course of the season, he was in the, I think the high 20s against us, he shot like 60. <laughs> but um, Wilson was like, 
I don't care if he goes three for three, just let him because it's going to take away from Goulding. It's going to take away. We want to. We want to just dare him to shoot him. And then after he's like one for one, two for two, three for three. I'm looking at the bench. I'm like, man, like let me move out of the hole and get up. Put pressure on him. He's like, nah, percentages will play the, out. Same with the Bryce thing. Yeah, we're playing drops on Bryce, and it's just like Bryce is as in drops works largely in NBL, but Bryce is a bit different. Yeah, it is. And, and Bryce is smart though because he draws a lot of fouls out of the drops as well because the guard chasing he just stops on a dime and gets fouls. So yeah, yeah, definitely. But then the problem is for our kind of our team defense and what we did yeah there were times where i thought we should have changed it where will was kind of a bit more hard-headed with that because just because strictly analytics numbers like it's going to sway our way where i thought i'd be probably 80 20 um, whereas he was 100 percent um but yeah he kind of knew that all of a sudden we go out of something that we haven't done all season take me out when i was in the paint take me out of the paint and it's a layup fest at times if they get around me or whatever so he kind of played the percentages that way and that's the way he coached um but yeah he was he was top two in Oklahoma. I got a call. I got a call from OKC um, from Nicholson. Basically, interviewed me about him for, at length. So he was down to their their last two, and he, he I, we thought I thought he was going to get it. So I. I, I thought he was going to get it because they were OKC run a, run a real long strenuous interview process, and I thought, man, he's he's a genuine chance for what they're trying to build there because they, they weren't so much about win now. They want to win. They're not like a old school Philly where we're like, oh, we're just tanking for picks. They're like, yeah. no, no, you guys are still going to perform and try to win games, but we don't think we have the talent level to win fifty. But we're not going 10 and, 10 and seventy-two. There's always going to be someone that can grow with them. Exactly, yeah. and then he didn't get that, and then the, the Houston thing all imploded with what was going on down there, and then he ended up he ended up going over there, and you know, it was kind of disappointing that he left for an assistant coaching role from from my perspective because I felt like we hired him to kind of rebuild Sydney culturally and he did a fantastic job in the year that he was here. So I thought more than fair to leave for head coaching, but I was kind of, at the start, I was kind of against him leaving for an assistant spot. I was like, nah, like he's contracted to us. Like, but then when you really think about it, like it was a fantastic opportunity for him, especially for his family financially to go over yeah. there and do that. But it was, there was, I was a little bit disappointed um, just because we we're losing such a great coach. Were you surprised that Jay Sean Tate got over this early as well? Because we, we knew it was good. Um, Definitely. But like this early, um, being able to go over there and make like a proper impact too. He was playing in a small league in Europe. Like, uh, was it, was he was, it, so uh, I remember when the Kings recruited him, they, they the had a budget and it wasn't high. Yeah. And they got this little power forward. Oh, yeah, six four. As in like a six four power yeah. forward is what you see in like low level D1 schools. Yeah. And then they turn out not to be pros. But you got this six four power forward, couldn't really shoot it that well at the yeah. time. And then came in and just made an absurd impact here. So it was sort of yeah, just was like... In, was he in Belgium or Netherlands? He was, he was in Belgium, yeah. yeah. So, and not a great league and wasn't putting up huge numbers over there. Like, yeah. It was like solid. So when they called me about him, they said, look, you know, we're, we're, hamstr- we're hamstrung a little bit with the budget. Like, we've got this import. And I said, who is he? What is he? And they're like, look, he's he's 6'4". He plays bigger than he is. So I straight away was like Draymond Green, kind of. Like, yep. plays bigger than he is. So that's what I kind of related to. So like, send me some film. Watched it. I'm like, man, big motor. You know... Um, and then found out that he uh, he was a captain of Ohio State when he was there. Um, okay. I believe his senior year, junior senior year, or senior year, he was a captain of the squad. So I was like, that's that's a big thing. big school. That's a big thing. And but it's you know you're, you're basically you're the guy that's winning all their hustle stats. If you're a captain, you're the guy that's doing all the right things. So I'm like, that's that's really what we need a guy like that that's just not going to come in and think he's the man or he's going to happy to play a role. He might not play a lot. And yeah, he exceeded expectations. And then. Towards the end of that NBL season, Golden State were going to bring him in for a 10-day. They'll, they'll kick in the tires with me. I said, man, you'll love him. Bring him in. He's awesome. 
um, and then um, everything kind of with COVID and then yeah. he got kind of froze out a little bit and then, then he ended up picking up that deal in Houston and, and even there I didn't think he'd be playing I didn't think he'd be starting like, starting I thought I thought he'd be a spark guy maybe a 10 or 15 on the roster maybe maybe a little bit of G League maybe not but he's, he's done a fantastic job and it, with the way the game's going it kind of makes sense right because he's you know 3-4 plays above his size and he shot the three ball better than I thought he would yeah. you know um he was he was streaky here in the NBL, and you could tell sometimes he wasn't as confident with it. But man, he's, he's shooting the ball really well, knocking down one or two a game, shooting a you know thirty percent clip, which is which is right where you want to be, and um, does a lot of good things for him. You mentioned the Warriors as like a potential landing spot for him. I sort of it would have been perfect to learn under, sort of like because he's sort of like a Draymond Light. I yeah, think I agree. He shoots a little bit better yeah. right now, but they're the same sort of player, undersized. You know, grabs a board, pushes it. Yeah, can make plays. Switch one through five. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that would have been really good, and that's why I kind of told him. I said like he's, you know, essentially right now, poor man's Draymond Green. That yeah, under Draymond Green could become a really good player. Draymond Green. And um, yeah, it just didn't work out with all that, and then he ended up he ended up in, in a good spot anyway. I mean, they're not they're not going to win a lot of games, but the beauty of that is he's going to play. You know, they're going to give him a lot of minutes, and he'll be within a couple of years, he'll be their glue, intangibles, veteran guy that will be invaluable for not just that roster, but potentially a championship roster somewhere down the line. Like the kind of PJ Tucker sort of thing. Yeah. Yep. Um, so he, he excelled in the NBL. I'm looking at the NBL now, and for the past few years, it's been point guards league. Um, I feel like lately, it's it's not necessarily shifting, but you've got some really talented bigs coming through from, you know, like Jock to Isaac to John Mooney. Um, what's it like to see those sorts of players excelling in the NBL? Because they're... They just seem so steady. Yeah, you need. I think you need a good physical big, like even Perth, like K was was huge for yeah. him. And and um, I think your 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 scoring guard still needs to be an import generally to have a chance to win a championship in this league. You need you need to have a one or a two, like Bryce, Casper, someone along those lines that can just get you a bucket. Yep. If you don't have those guys, you're probably going to be struggling a little bit. Uh, but yeah, the bigs bigs are still heavily valuable in 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 FIBA and. Um, you even look at the NBA though, like look at Utah, and they, they play a big that can't can't shoot the ball at all um, for thirty five plus minutes a game, which is kind of frowned upon these days. Yeah, and they got the best record in the league. They move the ball well, and they they put four shooters around him. So I, I, there's always that argument of I always get asked, "What do you think the big man's dinosaur? Like, is it, is it over for a big man in the NBA that can't shoot threes?" And I said. My argument was like, okay, like I still think there's a time and a place. Probably not 40 minutes a game. I thought like 20, 25 minutes would be a good number for a rim-protecting, non-shooting big, kind of like myself towards the end of the career. But Utah's kind of an anomaly in that, right? Because they're, they're playing a guy that can't really shoot the ball that well from outside the charge circle, but he's huge for them. Um, and their system has you know, reaped the benefits of having a guy like that down there. Do you have, not regrets, but the, the, the three-point shot wasn't, a thing for you it was sort of a thing in college college you? international yeah yeah do, do you regret maybe not working on that more and I know that the arm injury didn't help that too yeah. um, but you know do you think you could have had more longevity if that was something that you focused on more or was it something you focused on and just couldn't kind of nail down a bit of both I mean I shot it okay in college I was right decent know, amount of attempts yeah um, hit, hit just under one a game um, more like wide open ones and then the Olympics, I think in 08, I think I was like top five in three-point percentage, believe Jeez. it or not. In, I think it was, I think it was uh, 08. Was that, was that Beijing? Yeah, Beijing. So you yeah. might have to look that up. But I know I was up there. I shot something like six for 11 or seven for whatever it was. So 
Um, I felt really good coming out of that. Went back to the NBA. Still didn't shoot it as much. Like, it was still more... The game back then wasn't like as much five-man shooting threes. It was like, nah, get on the block. This is our set. And like Shot a Dwight Howard back to the basket sort of thing. A bit more than that. Probably more like a like a pal. Kind of that yeah. was my role with Milwaukee. Like, people don't remember. Like, it was a long time ago. But I was, I was pretty pretty good in Milwaukee like you know I had a few really good years averaged a double double you know for three or four or five years in a row all defensive team um, like yeah and I, I you know put up good numbers in my career you know 16 16 and 10 a night with two or three blocks so um, it was then okay we got to work on the three ball I worked on it a lot but it was just a confidence thing and I think it was just more not being able to have the volume to, to break through that if you miss one or two you still don't have that green light to shoot another two or three whereas I think these days you know there's an emphasis on keep shooting it. You know, analytics say it's gonna gonna work itself out. Whereas back then it was like, oh, you've, you've had a couple, we'll just chill out a little bit. But and then I just started to get my 18 footer kind of face up elbow jumper, block jumper going well. Not a lot. That wasn't my bread and butter, but just make one or two a game and make them like consistent enough. Yeah, we'll see. They have to push up on you in for the sure. Post. And then I was quick enough. My first step back in the day, pre-injury was really quick both ways, right? So then I, I really used that to my advantage in the post. And the arm thing happened. That's just something that I had to kind of work through. And, it, it, you know, the first year after my arm injury, like I couldn't shoot it. I couldn't make a two-foot jumper with my right hand. You know, it just it just wasn't working well. And not to use it as an excuse, but, you know, that ended up turning into a positive because I ended up, you know, getting traded to Golden State and winning a championship. Whereas, you know, staying in Milwaukee, I don't think I would have had a chance to, to win a ring. So back then, who was who were the shooting bigs? Was it just like Akur, Mehmet Akur? Mehmet Akur, but he wasn't really a volume three-point shooter. Like no. He'd shoot two or three of them. He was more, he'd be shooting 18-footers at times. Um, Dirk, but he was more a four. Hmm. So there wasn't like a, a Lopez. Like Lopez was all blocked back then. I remember, and he and d- when, didn't get off the floor. Know, I spoke about that on, on Roy Bowes with Mike, with my co-host, where he brought up him, where he, he's been a prime example of a guy that's gone with analytics where he's just gone completely he was a bucket on the post man like yeah he had beautiful touch could, could knock down a hook shot from 10 feet out sometimes you do all the right things and he just shoot it over you and throw that thing in um it's huge a, yeah we had a, i think um was it alvin gentry or someone just said man that guy's ball just goes in like whatever he throws up it just rattles around and goes in and then now he doesn't post up at all like he's just straight corner threes or four spread threes to give you a space so um you know, that's but yeah. When I when I first came in, Rashid Wallace played the five a little bit when Ben Wallace went out. Um, who else do they have? Like San Antonio would play two bigs in Duncan and like Splitter or Duncan and. Uh, I remember it was a really big deal when when Dunk when Tim Duncan would stretch if he hit a three. It was just a yeah, massive yeah, deal, huge. I mean, like Kevin Garnett hitting a very long mainly two, late game. Yeah, yeah, but like even back then, those like a Garnett or a Wallace, they wouldn't play those guys for long at the five because you know those yeah. guys didn't like the physicality of it. Some of them, Duncan was okay. But then some guys just, coaches were like, no, nah, we need him at the fourth spot. So it's completely changed. Um, and it's just interesting. I think analytics plays a big part of it. You know, I have a good friend of mine that, that does a lot of stuff in analytics and they're just, they'd rather a bad three than a good long two. And that's just the way the game's gone. How difficult was it for you from to be a really solid player and prominent player in Milwaukee, get traded to a team where you know that you're going to be a bit player and play with other superstars? So you're, you're going to be fifth or sixth option well I didn't know that initially when I first got there I knew Steph was a guy but he was still coming into his own we didn't know what Clay was going to be yet mm. so I thought like two David Lee was there so I thought three maybe two three you yeah. know and then once things got rolling you realise like there's two world class shooters next to me David Lee just had an all star year so I was probably four five six but um, you know it hurts a little bit to the extent of 
I was a man on my team. Like I was the number one option. Like yeah, shit was built around me. Like we, we used to sign guys around like who can help Bogues. Like help, I used to get doubled a lot in my career. So who can we get to help him? Kind of take advantage of those doubles and need some three point shooting spacing. And then you get there and you're like kind of you know an afterthought essentially offensively. And it takes some time to kind of change your brain or oh, I'm not the guy anymore like I need to change my game a little bit and that's when I was like cool like, I'm just going to try to get 10 boards a night try to block 2-3 shots take a charge um, set really good screens get 4 or 5 assists and then every now and then I get a lob dunk or whatever and get 8 points that way cool and that's kind of what I bought into and not only myself but you know David Lee had to buy into a role Andre Guadalla came in where he was an all star in Philly went to Denver came to us Come ben, the bench. Bench, bench roll Harrison Barnes was a first-round pick that was in and out of the lineup. So a lot of guys had to kind of give up something for the team. And, you know, that's a prime example of how you win a championship. Teams that, that struggle is like, you know, hypothetically, a Harrison says, oh, no, like, I should be playing more than Andre. Or then Andre says, I need more touches than this guy. Or it just won't work. It'll implode. Whereas that team, um, you know, guys weren't happy about it. Like, Andre wasn't happy to bench at the start but he got it he's like I can run this second unit I can be that point forward and it all it all kind of meshed together to get a championship ring were they just the perfect kind of personalities to buy into that sort of thing because that's difficult if you're the man for your whole life basically if like Andre Iguodala was the man probably from the day he stepped on a high school court up yep. until the day he left Philly right same with you I guess from what, under 19s to the day you left Milwaukee yeah pretty much yeah how did like is that the sort of as far as all the teams you've been around is that the most mentally kind of secure team you've been around? I think so. Look, and like I said, the, the day someone's told or the week, they're probably bitter about it and pissed off, but there comes a point where they're like, no, I'm just going to do my best in that role. That's what they want me to do. Um, we had a lot of guys that were pretty solidified contract-wise as well, which helps. That definitely helps. If we had five guys that were similar positions or similar minutes going into a free agent year, things change because like I need to get my numbers get my value up yeah. we didn't really have that you know Andre had a decent deal I had a decent deal David Lee had a decent deal so it was all about filling your role and I think it, yeah it, you need the right guys you need a good mix of Andre and myself where you know Andre was 8-9 years in the league at that point and I was 6-7 years David Lee being in the league you know the same man as me he was the same rookie class as me so we'd been around long enough to understand we'd been on some shit teams like David Lee had been on the Knicks for you know when they had all their turmoil down there I was with Milwaukee and some some years that were horrible. Um, Andre was on better teams, but understood which ones were great and which ones weren't. So once you put all that together, it kind of, you know, it is what it is. We want to win a championship or do we want to just go first round and everyone tries to go somewhere else in free agency again? Um, I want to end on just some personal chat. What are you cooking nowadays? I feel, like I'll, cooking? Keep, I feel like I'll keep it light <laughs> to end this thing. What are you cooking? Um, yeah, I went through this huge phase in COVID where I was like... Do you sous vide everything? What's that? You sous vide everything? Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to cook a bunch of stuff from scratch. Like, so I'm a big pasta guy. I didn't make the pasta from scratch because that's just a pain in the ass. But yeah. I wanted to do all my sauces and stuff um, from scratch. So I was just like, one day I just started getting stuck on YouTube and watching all these world class chefs. I'm like, I'm going to make that. I'm going to make that. And I just tell the wife, like, go buy this, this, and this from the supermarket. <laughs> go to the butcher, or whatever. And then I just, some of the cooks were five, six, seven hour cooks. You know, we make like a, my wife and I now make this like I think it's like a five or six hour slow cooked bolognese and it's just fantastic like I never had the time to do that because with with basketball schedule it's like I've got 20 minutes to eat before yeah. I have my nap or before a bus or it's just like constantly helter skelter right you never have a chance to just sit down and chill out for three or four hours so now you're home all day yeah I was excited doing that and I, I still I still I enjoy cooking I don't like the I don't 
don't really like the prep too much. I don't like the cleaning, but I enjoy the cooking part of it. Um, but yeah, it was just something to keep my mind going. I could see I was going a little bit crazy, especially post-retirement. No more training sessions, no more time commitment from a club, and then COVID, right? Um, yeah. And then we based ourselves up north from Queensland as well, so didn't have a whole lot of family and friends there um, for the last bit. So yeah, it just kind of, it just made sense, right? What are you slow cooking for six hours for a bolognese? The meat. Is that like, like an oxtail or? No, it's uh, it's it's a it's a beef pork mix. Um, but you can do beef, beef pork and veal if you wanted to. But yeah, just for a real slow cook with the meat, so it just becomes like it becomes like almost soupy tender. Like it's just yeah. like rather than almost quick, creamy, quick cooking it like like a normal bolognese where it's a bit more hard. It just it's unbelievable. Like I highly recommend it. I, I, <laughs> like, I love it. It's a pain in the ass to do. It's actually not. Sorry, it's takes it takes about thirty to forty minutes to get it to a point where you can leave it for the four or five hours. You just gotta wait. Yeah, so once you've done all that, you just leave it on there and you can go do something for four hours, come back and then you're pretty much done. But we'll make enough where we can batch out like two or three batches of it, freeze freeze what we don't eat. And then, yeah, but it's, cause it's one of those things you don't wanna make just once. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we'll do that. Um, do Pinella Vodka, do my own carbonaras now. So just- That's still very easy though. Yeah, they are. The carbonaras might actually like, cause- As, as in, because as in, you don't want to curdle. What's that? You don't want it to curdle, the right? Egg. Yeah, the egg, yeah, yeah. But that's the art form of it, right? So that's yeah. why a lot of restaurants don't do, they do cream-based carbonara, which I've, I've found out. Like, so this is the kind of dumb shit I ended up learning because <laughs> just working foods, like restaurants do the cream because it's piss easy and you can't screw it up. You put cream in and just you yeah, it with up, the egg, fine. you got you to temper the egg and then you got to put it in. And if you yep. if you mess it up by one minute, you end up with um, scrambled eggs. eggs. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you know about it, right? So yeah. Yeah, man, like just learn all that. It's just cool learning about food. And I love food, like the wog, wog background mentality of just like, all about eating good quality food and sitting down and having the big meat meze plate and yeah. interacting and good drinks and good food, good atmosphere. I'm more about that these days than you know something that's material. Yeah, I've got that that wog background too, where it's my mom has taught me how to cook Turkish food. Yeah, and then I do my own kind of millennial stuff and learn Mix how to up, make, make learn how to make pastas and steaks and that sort of stuff. And then I teach her yeah how to make pasta properly. She used to serve us pasta with sauce on top. Oh which, yeah, 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 which is just like it's not a thing anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, like I I was the first person to introduce her to a carbonara without cream. Yep. She was shocked. Yeah, just I'm putting <laughs> pepper, parmesan, and egg in a bowl, and she's so confused. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but no, like that background is like, it's awesome to have. And oh, when is. when you go back to from an NBA career to being a Family Guy, it's cool to have those sort of values. Yeah, and I feel like food and sharing. Well, right? the person I am, I just have so many different things I've seen and learned from kind of all wrapped up into one that's why i feel like i can talk about some you know i can talk about the most random shit, like playing poker the to muscle cars to cooking to you know reading stuff about being a parent raising kids like just my, i'm kind of that's what people don't really know about me i kind of read and study up on a lot of random shit that you wouldn't think i know and i enjoy talking about it i enjoy talking about you know i'd love to get a chef on that you know just yeah. talk shit about food like i enjoy that um and it might be something that i'm learning about might be something that i might not know a lot about but I, i'm intrigued by it and that's kind of always been my thing and just keeps my brain ticking over i think i do have one other question that it's sort of off topic but i can link it you talk about your background right mm-hmm. it's like european did you play football like soccer growing up i didn't play organized soccer i played soccer with the boys at lunchtime at school and on weekends a little bit but no organized form i was too, i was way too big i have to be a keeper and I wasn't, I was okay with my feet, but just so big, man, these little, little nuggets would just come in and body <laughs> me out. But, um, I, I enjoy playing at school, was keeping most of the time, 
played a little bit of tennis, but the only organized sports, like fully organized, were I started in gymnastics, which I absolutely hated. And that was because my sister's five years older. So she did gymnastics. So parents thought one car trip would be Why easier. Yep. Yeah, we'll just group him in, go do that sport. And <laughs> after about six months, I'm like, I hate this shit. <laughs> All I like was a trampoline because you just jump on yep. the trampoline. Everything else, I'm like, get me away from this. I was more a ball sports dude. So I yep. like anything to do with ball sports. And then um, I did Taekwondo after that. And then after that, I was like, I want to do, want to do basketball. Did Vic kick, which was Oz kick today. Was a Vic kick back when I was younger. So it shows my age. And then the parents were like, if you want to do basketball, this is it. Like we're not changing, we're not changing sports again. It costs money. Blah 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 blah. Like gave me that whole guilt trip. I said, Nah, I'm all in basketball. And that was my first organized team. Was at nine, and then never really looked back. Yeah, I asked because I speak to some you know Serbian national team people and. They're talking about Jokic and his passing mm. and how football is just so helpful in yeah. seeing, I don't know, just seeing like a second ahead, you know, you play yeah. in triangles. The same with Steve Nash and the way he passes. Yeah. I was wondering if they had anything. Where, where does your passing, do you think, come from? You, that sort of. Vision. I played every sport I could as a kid. Yeah. Not necessarily organized, but with locally. I played cricket in the summer when the cricket was on TV. We'd go outside and play cricket in the street. Tennis, Australian Open comes on, we go play tennis. Like whatever we saw on TV, we go play. So I played. I think it's really important for kids at a young age to play as many sports as you can. Like do a bunch of different, you know, fine motor skills, darts. Yeah. I was good at billiards. I was good at ping pong. Like just playing random shit, right? I think that really contributes to if you end up being a professional sportsman to your to your motor skills, right? But um, I just watched a lot of basketball like as a kid. That's what it was. Like I'd record um, the NBA game of the week every Saturday and then I'd record NBA action. Then I'd record all the NBL games and then I'd watch all the NBA stuff on repeat Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday till a new episode came out and recorded again all fresh records I would never tape over it and then when it was the NBA off season no basketball I'd watch all those tapes again and I'd just watch and watch and watch and watch and I think a lot of my passing in basketball IQ just came from I watched so much of it as a kid because I loved it so much and it was just always ingrained in me to play the right way and, and watching like okay why did that guy do a, a quick swing pass why didn't he or you know, why did he do a touch pass as he cut through the lane? Because that, that that defender rotated. I was already thinking about that at a young age. So it just all kind of blended in well. So you're retired now. Are you are you content? Have you gotten to that point yet? It's been a little while now. You're, yeah, I think... Happy I, enough? I mean, I'm, I've got no, no gripes. Like, I mean, yeah. I've made a load of money that's been able to have, a, have our family live in some of the nicest places in the world, experience the nicest countries, the nicest... We go back to food. Like I've spent insane amounts of money on steak before just because I try, like I love high-end food. Like yep. not every day, but I love trying. So I've had that opportunity to do things that I never would have dreamed of as a kid. Um, so I, I'm very thankful for that. I mean, you always think like you could have done more as an athlete. Like once you retire, like, oh, maybe I could have done, could have got another year out of my body or yep. maybe I could have come back from that injury sooner or maybe I shouldn't have left Milwaukee and had better individual numbers, whatever it is, right? So... There's always a bit of kind of complacency there, but yeah, in the grand scheme of things, I think if you asked, you know, 11 year old Andrew Bogart, like you'd be playing in the NBA for 14 years and have a 16 year professional career, like I would have told you were crazy. Like a goal for me back then was to play in the NBA as, as an 11 year old. Um, that was a, an achievable goal. The NBA was, I've always said this, the NBA for me was like a unicorn. Like a, that's, that's a cool fantasy to have, Yeah, but it's not realistic. Like Luke Longley's the only guy in the last 20 years that's played a valuable long tenured role in the NBA. Like, what would I break those those numbers? And it all ended up working out pretty well. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. No worries. It's, it's been real. Um, let's do this again. No worries. Thanks for having me.